Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. He ranted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With episodes weekly, Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Guys, look at this. We had no time to prepare. Earlier this week, after a few hours of heavy rainfall, a lot of the northern half of the tiny Caribbean island of St. Lucia was underwater. This is a woman looking out onto her street from the second floor of her house. I tried to save my car. It was floating away. My neighbors, it was, oh my God, look at this. This came out of nowhere. Flood everywhere. These are employees of a hotel wading through brown water inside the hotel stairwell. That's people working area flood. These scenes from Sunday night in St. Lucia have barely been covered outside of the island, but they did come up at the opening for COP27 this week in a speech by Mia Motley, the prime minister of Barbados. The devastation caused in Belize by tropical storm Lisa or the torrential floods a few days ago in St. Lucia. We don't need to repeat it because a picture spoke a thousand words earlier. But what we do need to do is to understand why, why we are not moving any further. St. Lucia was one of the examples Motley brought up in a scathing speech about a battle that's been at the heart of this conference. What rich countries that are responsible for the biggest share of greenhouse gas emissions owe poor countries that are suffering the consequences of a climate crisis they've barely contributed to. Those countries such as ours who have not contributed greatly to the emission of greenhouse gases should not be crowding out our fiscal space in order to be able to finance the reconstruction after a climatic event and should not be choosing between the financing of education and health or reconstruction of our societies. After decades of advocacy, a way to address that inequality is finally on the agenda this year. A coalition of countries, mostly from the global south, are calling for a loss and damages fund. This is a pot of money that big carbon-emitting countries would pay into that could then be used to help those recovering from climate disasters. Today on the show, we're going to get into the debate around loss and damages. My guest is Nixon Berry. He works with the Caribbean Youth Environmental Network based in St. Lucia. We're going to talk about why he and others think rich countries should pay for what places like St. Lucia are going through, why these countries have been resisting, and how this would all work. And later, another big story from this week. 
Elon Musk has now completed his $44 billion deal to buy Twitter after months of legal battles, and he's changed his own Twitter title to Chief Twit. The ongoing saga of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter has activists around the world worried, especially those in countries where free speech isn't always guaranteed. I'm Tamara Kandaker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Hey, Nixon, it's great to talk to you. Hi, Tamara. It's great to talk to you, and thank you for having me. So you're based in St. Lucia, which is one of the many climate-vulnerable countries that's been pushing for a loss and damage fund. And St. Lucia actually has come up at COP this week because of the flooding that you've seen on the island in recent days. And I wonder if we can start with that. Can you tell me what that has been like? Tamara, it certainly was a very scary experience. It was a normal sunny day. Uh, People were about their business. And out of nowhere, the rain started about midday. And I, in fact, I was on the road. I was driving at the time when the rain started. And eventually, about after two, about just about two hours, we started seeing videos circulating of entire highways underwater. The roads were not visible. Cars were being washed away. There was no power in the northeastern part of the island. People's houses are being washed away. I'm telling you, it was sad. I think people are still shaken up by this. Some of these people don't have insurances. We're talking about people living in in small wooden houses. Who is going to refund them for that? Yeah. Nobody, there was no announcement that there was going to be a flood. There was no announcement that there was any major system affecting the island. It was just a normal day. And this is why we say the climate is certainly changing. The warning times are getting lesser and lesser, but the impact is getting greater. We were unprepared. Yeah, that's terrifying with no warning, no time to prepare. What is it that makes St. Lucia in particular vulnerable to extreme weather and climate change? But St. Lucia is a small island um, surrounded by water. You have to examine the state of the economy uh, in St. Lucia. Very vulnerable economies, mostly based on, on tourism. If the water continues to rise, and we see it happening right now, currently the uh, government had to put measures in place to build artificial reefs to protect some of the coastline. If the coastline is being degraded, it means, therefore, that our tourism product is being um, affected negatively because people like the beach. People come here for the beach. They come here for the relaxation. Then we're talking about the negative impacts on, on marine life. Uh, coral reefs and coral reefs are not only used for tourists to come and enjoy but it's an ecosystem for fishes and and growth fishermen lose their livelihoods because fishes are going to decline this type of weather what we've just experienced this type of uh, natural disaster is going to continue and it means more damage to property it means loss of livelihoods it means there may be loss of life. 
How capable is St. Lucia of handling the costs and the damage that is already going to come as a result of climate change? I think we are in no way prepared. We are in no way prepared financially and otherwise to manage the impacts of, of climate change. Just look at Sunday. In a matter of hours, millions of dollars in infrastructural damage, money that was not in the budget. We are not prepared in the slightest. We can build all the roads we want. We can build all the drains we want. But if the temperature keeps changing, if, if the sea levels keep rising, if the rains are going to come in, 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 in such bucket a drop, as we call it here, one drop is a bucket, and, and it's going to saturate the soil, you're going to have those flash floodings, where can we run? Yeah, and there are a lot of countries in the same boat right now. Uh, Pakistan, for example, has been dealing with devastating floods. It barely contributed to the climate crisis, but it's seeing the worst consequences of it. But we are finally seeing a loss and damage fund on the agenda at COP in Egypt, that's something climate advocates in places like the Caribbean and the Horn of Africa, South Asia, have been fighting for for a long time. Why do you think higher carbon-emitting countries should pay into something like that? I think the answer to that is simple. If you're responsible, if you're benefiting and you're responsible, then you, you need to pay. You need to accept responsibility for, for what is happening this, this, this phenomenon that's happening is not caused by St. Lucia. You cannot even measure St. Lucia's carbon footprint. You can barely measure the carbon footprint of many of the countries in, in the Caribbean, um, in, in that chain. But we are the ones being mostly affected. The argument that because you're responsible, you should pay. That's largely a moral argument based on the idea of fairness, right? And we're seeing a lot of countries, um, high-emitting countries, opposing this idea. They're very reluctant to even acknowledge the concept of, of loss and damages. Do you think that moral argument is enough to convince richer, higher carbon-emitting countries to contribute to something like a loss and damage fund? Of course not. Of course not. And we can take example from COP21. We were all excited. World leaders flew on their fancy jets, booked expensive hotels in Paris. And it was, it was a sight to behold of the kind of show that was uh, put on for the world to see. And you begin to ask yourself, what is the result? Major contributors have pulled out from their commitment to the Paris Agreement. So this is not a matter of moral. It's, it's, it's human. And so it depends on who is sitting in the chair and how we feel today. Moral is not going to save us. I think that, uh, and this is why part of the, the argument in, at the Paris Agreement was pushing for a legally binding agreement. Because we, we need something with motifs that can um, force the hands mm -hmm. of, of these major contributors to pay. Well, what do you think it's going to take to get that legally binding agreement? Because you are going to need buy-in from these countries that have been pushing back. So does it come down to public pressure on these politicians to act? 
we have to understand, and I have been a part of COP, and one thing I can assure you is that climate change is a highly politicized issue. This moral, this, this buying that you're talking about, of course, it's, it comes from more than, than moral beliefs. We have to continue public pressure because we're not going to get it anywhere else. The United States pulled out of the, of the Paris Agreement. It took a change in government to have a buy-in again. And that came from the electorate. Yeah? So this is a grassroots movement. I want to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's a daily news podcast called Front Burner, and it's kind of our sister show. It comes out weekday mornings. It's a deep dive into the biggest story of the day. I listen to it every day, and I always come away having learned something new. They cover all kinds of news, Canadian, international, occasionally sports, pop culture. It's hosted by the brilliant Jamie Poisson. Check it out on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Harjeet Singh is one of the people that's been involved in the public pressure campaign to create a loss and damages fund. The push from developing countries has been there for a very, very long time. Uh, the first time when the issue of climate impacts uh, was raised uh, and how to address them was back, way back in 1991. He works with the Climate Action Network. It's a coalition of groups from around the world working on climate advocacy. And he says that the fact that this is on the agenda is a huge win. It was by small island states who could clearly see that um, because of the impacts of climate change, there are going to be um, devastation from sea level rise, uh, from floods and storms. And they wanted a mechanism in place. But rich countries did not pay any heed to their request. So imagine the fight started almost 30 years ago, and particularly in the last 10 years, uh, we have it as part of the negotiations, but never reached a point where it was prioritized politically to the point that we have seen yesterday. Since January, and especially since the floods in Pakistan, civil society groups like Harjeet's have been ramping up the pressure, and they've managed to force the issue onto the agenda. By the end of COP27, the hope is that countries will at least agree on establishing a loss and damages fund. The details of how it would actually work, like who pays and how much, would be worked out by 2024. That's when the money would start flowing. In Harjeet's mind, the biggest source of funding has to be the fossil fuel industry. Even now, the kind of windfall profits they have made, uh, they should be taxed so that people who are suffering from climate impacts can be supported. And also people who are facing the energy crisis, because fossil fuel industry is not only causing climate crisis, but also health crisis and the energy crisis where people have been forced to choose between heating and eating. And there are other options that we can explore, such as tax on uh, aviation, shipping, uh, financial transaction tax, uh, and of course, you know, these massive subsidies that's going to fossil fuel industries. 
One of the arguments against loss and damages is legal. So what these countries open themselves up to if they agree to pay for loss and damages from climate change. What is the legal reason these countries would oppose something like this? Well, that has exactly been the uh, concern from developed countries that once they agree to loss and damage, it's going to open floodgates of litigation. Uh, but I always argue that it's exactly the other way around. Uh, you have a chance to actually you know, be in a more cooperative and mode and show solidarity um, so that people who are getting impacted for no cause of theirs can be helped. But if that doesn't happen, uh, then people have no option but to take those companies and countries to court, which has already started happening. I would say more we cooperate in this space, less number of litigation cases we see, which have already been multiplying because of inaction that we see in the climate space. John Kerry is at COP27 right now. He's the U.S. climate envoy, and he's committed to talking about this fund. But he also said at an event last month that no country has enough money to help places like Pakistan that are recovering from climate disasters. We have a limited, we, you know, we're not, you tell me the government in the world that has trillions of dollars, because that's what it costs. Let's be serious about this. We got to talk about how we're going to do it. How do you measure it? How do you allocate? What do you allocate? Where's the money coming from? You think this will- what do you make of the idea that no country can afford to do this? Well, first, the question is whether those companies are, are obligated to pay or not. Absolutely, yes because the climate disasters that we are facing right now are a result of industrialization that happened over the last 150 years. And countries like the U.S. have have benefited from that industrialization, uh, extraction of those natural resources. We have seen countries like the U.S. or Europe uh, as a region able to mobilize hundreds of billions and trillions when it came to financial crisis in 2008. And of course, the military spending is in trillions. So countries have money. It's about the, the, the political priority. Look at the fossil fuel subsidies again. Uh, if you calculate subsidies as per IMF, uh, the industry is getting these subsidies about $11 million a minute. So money is not a problem. It's about how we redirect those resources uh, from perpetrators of the climate crisis to victims who are suffering. Harjeet says he's optimistic that by the end of the conference, there will be agreement on establishing a loss and damages fund. There is a huge political momentum. Many world leaders also talked about the need for uh, finance for loss and damage. So we have seen it reaching that level of political uh, priority. It's now about really getting together and understanding the urgency of the task because we are so late in coming to this point where we are going to discuss finance. We are at least 10 years late. And people in Somalia, in in Pakistan, in Venezuela, in Cuba, are waiting for this kind of international solidarity and support. Like a lot of journalists in North America, I am on Twitter. 
and I use it to follow the news, find guests for the show, and read people's comments on whatever is happening in the world. So I've been following the story of Elon Musk's Twitter takeover pretty closely, including his ideas around content moderation, his plans to start charging for verification, and his firing of the company's human rights team. And for me, if there were ever a time where I couldn't use Twitter, it would mean losing one way to stay in touch, put my thoughts out there, and see how other people think. But for a lot of journalists in other parts of the world, the stakes are way higher. For example, Kirsten Hahn is a journalist in Singapore, and she uses Twitter to talk about things most people don't talk about publicly in Singapore. And she's got around 29,000 followers who are listening. Singapore has issues with human rights and also civil and political rights. I use Twitter as a way to let people know what's going on. So, for instance, this year, I use Twitter a lot to talk about the death penalty for drugs in Singapore and how many people were executed this year for drug offences. Kirsten is often risking her personal freedom when she's on Twitter. Her outspokenness on and off the platform has actually gotten her investigated by local police. That's why, since Elon Musk bought Twitter, she's been worried. We're not all like the U.S. We all have different considerations and concerns, and I'm not convinced that he understands that. In countries like Singapore, Myanmar, Thailand, and China, where there are restrictions on free speech, Twitter has, over the years, become a really important tool for organizing and expressing dissent. And with its future up in the air, activists are wondering if they're going to be able to keep doing that. Ya Chiao Wang has these same concerns. She's a senior researcher on China with Human Rights Watch, and she used to work with the folks at Twitter's human rights team. They were let go last week, along with almost half the workforce there. And we started off by talking about what that could mean for journalists and activists around the world. I can give you a good example that just happened to me three days ago. Uh, You know, Jian Wang is a a Chinese activist. She's based in the UK. And uh, she posts a lot of uh, information about uh, China-based activists who are imprisoned, who are harassed by the government. So she gets trolled a lot by the accounts that are affiliated, suspected to be affiliated with the Chinese government. Then recently, she was uh, suspended again because of the abusive reporting. And there were also a lot of uh, accounts that were impersonating her. So I saw like at least 10 accounts that claimed to be her. So I used to do, you know, deal with that by talking to Twitter and they would take actions. This time I just, you know, messaged her and saying, sorry, Jane, the contacts at Twitter that I know of, they all got fired. You know, that's the, that's the real consequences for real people who are doing great work. The most recent development is that Elon Musk wants to remove the verification system where a blue check mark tells you when a high-profile account is who they say they are. He wants to get rid of that system and start charging $8 for it. What are the implications of that for activists, for example? Twitter, you know, has verified lots of activists in authoritarian countries. So this provided a layer of protection to their accounts. But 
if you have to pay for that, first of all, eight dollars is not a small amount for a lot of people in countries、uh, outside of the Western world. And secondly, I think it's more important is that if you have to pay through a credit card, it's very likely that、uh, you know it's attached to your re- real name identity. Then you know they get real a chance for the governments to find out who is behind those Twitter accounts that are criticizing the government.、Mm-hmm. So this. Pose a real risk to people who anonymously on Twitter,、uh, you know, expressing views that are, you know, not accepted、uh, by the society or by the government. Right. So, so we have concerns like the implications of the lack of verification. We could see an increase in trolls and impersonation. Loss of personal data is a worry. The implications for for free speech. And I'm wondering. Which parts of the world are you seeing these concerns in the most? Can you give me a few examples? You mentioned China, but where else? In Myanmar,、uh, Twitter has become a critical platform after the Huangta takeover. On February first last year, the coup overthrew the elected government led by Aung San Suu Kyi. That triggered months of nationwide protests, ensuing a bloody crackdown by the military. Hundreds were killed in the crackdown, and tens of thousands have been displaced. The U.S.、Uh, you know, people are using Twitter to express themselves,、uh, criticize the Huangta. You know, the,、uh, Myanmar activists are already saying that、uh, Twitter was not doing enough to protect them. They're already in a lot of、uh, disinformation that are、uh, suspected、uh, affiliated with the government. And now, after Twitter fired. Lots of the people who are responsible to protect them,、uh, you know, we will see even a worse situation for those activists.、Um, Hong Kong the same. I mean, Hong Kong used to enjoy a high degree of uh, uh, press freedom, but in recent years,、uh, Beijing really cracked down on that. Journalists have gone to jail. They closed down major newspapers. So. People go to Twitter. People go to Facebook to express themselves to report on the news. You know, it's become a more and more important platform as a result of uh, uh, the government's increased repression on the traditional、uh, media platforms. Right, and just to just offer another example, we were talking to a Thai journalist named Praveen Rojana Pruk, and he brought up how important Twitter is for politically active Thai. Youth. It's it's a place where you could talk about controversial topics like monarchy reform, and you're protected because you can be anonymous. And he was saying that he was worried that that might be at risk. I hope that Elon Musk will recognize the value of Twitter. After all, he paid a lot of money for it, and ensure that it remains an open space. I wonder if we can drill down on what this means for China in particular, because the situation there is a little bit unique, right? What role does Twitter play in China right now? First of all, Twitter is blocked in China. You know, people still use VPNs and other circumvention tools to. Uh, circumvented the government's blockage to express themselves. It really says, you know, they they can't stand the censorship. Even there's risks associated with using Twitter. I feel, you know, this applies to a lot of authoritarian countries. What makes China unique is that, you know, China is also a place that、uh, 
Musk has huge business interests. Right. Tesla's biggest factory is in Shanghai. Um, the factory produces cars for the China market as well as the uh, EU market. China right now is Tesla's second biggest car sale place, but China is the the biggest car market. So, and in the past two years, there's a significant increase in Tesla's car sale in China. So, you know, we expect it to be the number one market for Tesla. And at the same time, the Chinese government has a successful track record of leveraging foreign business interests in China to make them self-censor. You know, there is so many examples. Um, a, a good one is Apple. Apple has removed hundreds of VPNs from China's app store because the government doesn't want people to use the VPNs to uh, access information that is banned the government. Right. But, but what are the fears exactly given... Tesla's huge interests in China, what could this takeover potentially mean? Like, what are the fears that users in China have right now? I think the biggest one is the the safety of the accounts. For example, the Chinese government goes to Twitter saying, oh, this anonymous account on Twitter is criticizing the government. We wanted to know who is behind the account. And another thing, you know, I would mention is that because the Chinese government are already doing a lot of disinformation campaign on Twitter, try to propagate its own narratives on issues like Xinjiang, where crimes against humanity is happening, also issues like Hong Kong, COVID. So Twitter in the past several years has taken down many of those campaigns that counts they suspect to be fake. They are worried that they're going to stop doing that or doing less of that. So Twitter will have more and more disinformation that are originated from the Chinese government. Twitter is one of many different big social media platforms. And I'm just curious what you think about how big of a deal this actually is. Um, you know, some of the the people who are using Twitter as a platform for free speech, can't they go on other social media platforms? Like, I just want to understand how Im- important this development is. The nature of social media is that I'm on there because other people are there, right? It, it's harder to, you know, say, okay, now I feel, um, you know, Twitter is no longer the safe place that I can talk. Then I go to another place. You know, people are talk, talking about a Mastodon, right? The platform only has a few million users right now. Like, how do you even support a massive migration? Assuming that the massive migration happens, you know, we don't know. It's not that easy just to say, you know, let's go to the alternative. Where's the alternative? Whether it's big enough, whether there's the infrastructure enough to support those, you know, lots of more users. Thank you so much. This is really interesting. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta, and our sound designer is Julia Whitman. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McKay-Blokos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you later. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.